Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of 17-year-old Blake Chappelle. Blake went missing in October 2011, after attending his homecoming dance. His body was found in a nearby creek two months later. The autopsy confirmed Blake died from a gunshot wound to the head, and his death was ruled a homicide. Officials believe he was only in the water for about a week, leaving his whereabouts unknown for weeks. It's been over a decade since Blake was murdered but his mother, Melissa, is still fighting for answers. This is the case of Blake Chappelle. Blake Tyler Chappelle was born on February 7, 1994. He didn't have a strong relationship with his father. In fact, Blake wouldn't meet him until he was 10 years old. But Blake was very close with his mother, Melissa. Melissa worked in retail management for some time, but unfortunately, in 2007, she suffered from a stroke, went on disability, and was no longer able to afford their standard of living. In 2008, she moved the family to Noonan, Georgia, where her parents were born. After this big life change for Blake, he wrote an essay titled Poverty. It reads, quote, People in this world live day to day, cold, hungry, and alone. While most of us flaunt our money and just spend it like it's nothing, I do not understand it. Don't get me wrong, some people chose to make the wrong decisions which landed them in that kind of situation. But others? Others didn't choose to be that way. Believe it or not, I used to be poor. I lived for three months without a house, without a sense of stability and security, stuck in a horrible dream where everything was taken from me. I'm so thankful for everything I have now. I have a sense of sympathy for those who have to live every single day like I had to, end quote. From what I could gather researching this case and speaking with Melissa directly, Blake seemed like a very sensitive and sweet kid. He was always bringing home stray animals or kids who needed a meal or a place to sleep for the night. Although they went through some tough times, he and Melissa raised money for a friend's father who needed dental work. Blake also hustled hard to make sure he had his own money. He would buy Monster Energy drinks in bulk and resell them at school for a profit. Through selling the drinks and collecting the tabs, he was able to outfit his beloved monster-themed Kawasaki 250 dirt bike. Now, Blake did enjoy being the center of attention. At the age of seven, he performed a rap song at his grandmother's wedding. Melissa would admit that she might have told him he was a bit better than he actually was at it. He could also play Carry On A Wayward Son on the hardest difficulty of Guitar Hero with his back turned to the TV. He loved it so much, the song would later be played at his funeral. Now, by 2011, at the age of 17, Blake wasn't really sure what he wanted to do with his life. He considered modeling, broadcasting, and even being a lawyer. Honestly, I think he probably could have done almost anything he put his mind to. But enough from me. Here is Melissa to tell us what Blake was like. 
he he was really interested in uh dirt bikes and uh anything that had wheels on it really skateboard um he uh liked to play play video games like any other kid but i you know i tried to keep him off the video video games as much as possible and try to to get him interested in you know other things um he played tennis he played football um he was just an all-around good kid he loved to fish um fished a lot and um he liked school especially art class um he did take a broadcasting class in his um ninth grade year and decided afterwards he he was really interested in broadcasting um he was uh scouted at the at a mall in atlanta by a talent scout um and was getting ready to have headshots made and a portfolio made um to do a little modeling um he never got a chance to to get to do that. Um, but just really, really laid back and easygoing, you know, um, until it came to his like personal space, he was very protective of his, his personal space. He liked, you know, his alone time. Um, just a really bright, bright kid who got along with everybody. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The year 2011 was not an easy year for Blake. That summer, he broke up with his girlfriend. Because Blake's girlfriend was 16 at this time and has expressed to local news outlets that she doesn't want her name used, I'm going to respect her wishes. To further protect her privacy, I'm also omitting the names of her mother and stepfather. 
but her involvement in this incident I'm going to tell you about is important, so I can't omit her completely. Let's talk about it. In addition to interviewing Melissa, she was kind enough to invite me on a call with others who knew Blake. In this call, they described Blake's rocky relationship with his girlfriend's parents and her running away from home. Now, this girl's stepfather was apparently pretty open about the fact that he was willing to hurt Blake if need be. This may sound like a normal, hollow dad threat to the guy dating his daughter, but it really doesn't seem like it, given what I'm about to tell you. In May 2011, Melissa gets a call from Blake's ex-girlfriend. She and Blake had been broken up for about a week at this time. She's crying, asking where Blake is. Melissa tells her that Blake isn't home, and lies to her about where he really is. About 30 minutes later, the ex-girlfriend's mother calls Melissa, asking if she's seen her daughter. Her mother explains that she wrote, I hate you, bitch, on their TV in lipstick, and left home without her cell phone. Melissa admits to her that she lied about where Blake was, explaining that she was just trying to avoid any drama. Melissa then gives her the real address of where Blake is. From here, the ex-girlfriend's mother finds Blake, who is not with her daughter. She immediately calls Melissa and says Blake better not be hiding her. Now, news about this spreads like wildfire. See, this friend lived directly across the street from Hunter Ridge Trailer Park, a huge community that Blake and Melissa used to live in. It's filled with kids Blake's age, and in total, Melissa says there are dozens of witnesses who see everything unfold. Melissa also basically gets a play-by-play of what happens next through a series of phone calls from Blake's friend. Apparently, after Blake finds out his ex-girlfriend is missing, he gets on his bicycle to go look for her. He ends up finding her sitting on a bench at the nearby lake. Blake has her get on the back of his bike so he can take her to a phone to call her mom. Shortly after this, Melissa gets a call from Blake's friend, screaming, saying that the girl's stepfather and other men are going around with a pistol, asking where Blake is, saying they've got something for him. Eventually, the stepfather finds Blake, hits him in the head, knocking him off his bike. From here, he pistol whips him and repeatedly kicks him in the head and ribs while he's on the ground. Witnesses say that the stepfather then throws his stepdaughter in the trunk of his vehicle. This is something she would later deny. However, she would not deny that her stepfather did assault Blake. Now, all this time, Melissa is on the phone with Blake's friend, and she tells him to call 911. Both Melissa and Blake's friend end up making a call. From here, Blake's friends carry him to another house where they wait for paramedics to arrive. Despite being told that he most likely had a concussion, Blake ultimately refused to go to the hospital, saying he just wasn't sure what the cost would be. So, Melissa administered first aid. When Melissa gets to Blake, he's obviously shaken up. But he also tells Melissa something very strange. He says that his ex-girlfriend was wearing his clothing, including his shoes, clothing he'd never given to her. He tells Melissa he's freaked out because it all happened so fast and he thinks his ex may have planned for him to get beat up as punishment for breaking up with her. Now, Melissa says that it was just a few days prior, while Blake wasn't home, that his ex-girlfriend stopped by the house. She said she wanted to return some of Blake's items and pick up some of hers. So, Melissa sends her upstairs and tells her to go ahead and grab whatever she needs. They assume this is where she obtained Blake's clothing. Of course, Melissa wants to press charges against the girl's stepfather. But things get a little weird. 
According to Melissa, the police call her and she gives them his address. The police aren't able to get in touch with him, his wife, or his stepdaughter. But they assure Melissa the case is being handed over to an investigator. The next day, Melissa gets a call on her phone and the caller ID says that it's the local police department. She speaks to a man who says he is now investigating the case. He asks Melissa to explain what happened and to speak with Blake for a few minutes. During this call, Melissa informs the investigator that the stepfather went back to the area of the incident and told the witnesses, the children who saw what happened, that they better not tell or they'd get it. The investigator asks Melissa why on earth he would do that. Now, Melissa doesn't think much of it. She assumes the case is being worked. Then, about two weeks later, she gets a call from an officer at the Jonesboro PD who says he's investigating the case and he apologizes that he hasn't reached out sooner. He's actually been on vacation for the past 10 days, but he would be the man investigating the assault on Blake. Now, Melissa explains that she is incredibly confused because she had already spoken to an investigator, but he explains that there is no other investigator and has no idea who she would have spoken to. So, Melissa goes to her phone provider and asks for her call records. Melissa says that when she went down the list of phone numbers, she realized it was the stepfather who called her initially, posing as an investigator. If this wasn't strange enough, three weeks later, Melissa gets a call from the real investigator asking if she can bring Blake to the station so he can close out the case. Melissa is again very confused and tells him that she doesn't want it to be closed. She wants to press charges. So Melissa takes Blake to the station to try to get everything sorted out. We were in the waiting room at the sheriff's office and there was no, no one else in there. There were a couple of officers behind the glass. Um, and he comes in the room and introduces himself to Blake and shakes Blake's hand and shakes my hand and asks Blake how he's doing. Um, he says, okay, are you ready? Um, we'll, we'll go ahead and go up. And Blake says, well, my mom's going to come too. And I kind of, um, I immediately said, yes, I, you know, I'm going to go up with him. He goes, no, no, no. And he stopped and he said, now, how old are you again? And Blake said, 17. He goes, no, you're, you're old enough to go up by yourself. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm you know, he has a right to have somebody with him. I'm his parent. You know, he is underage. Um, and he goes, hold on a second. And he walks over and he gets this visitor's sticker and comes back and slaps it on Blake's chest. And he goes, no, you're good to go, dude. It's only going to take a couple of minutes, you know, let's just go up. And, um, he looks at me and he says, no, just stay right here. We'll be back in a few minutes and proceeded to take him upstairs. After his interrogation of Blake, um, he came back down and basically told me, um, he laughed. He said, everything Blake said was a lie. He made it all up. Uh, everything was a lie, you know, and, and you, you just don't lie about, being out in in an open field in front of, I don't know, two or three dozen people uh, and having to be carried to the nearest house by your friends because you're unable to walk yourself, um, having concussions and 
numerous other injuries. And shortly after this incident, I happened to be in line at the the corner gas station. And I had only seen uh, one time before and that stepfather. But I did recognize him after he stood at the counter and bragged to the clerk that he, he had beat some kid and broke his hand in the process. You know, and I informed this investigator of this, this um, incident because I knew that there was a, a video recording and audio recording at the store that did work. And um, this investigator would just refuse to go down and pick it up. Ultimately, the stepfather never faces charges for assaulting Blake. However, Blake was charged with custodial interference. Blake spent 16 days in jail for this incident. Apparently, in the eyes of the law, at the age of 17, Blake was considered an adult. And because his 16-year-old minor ex-girlfriend said that she was leaving home to find him, Blake was apparently at fault. Now, I think this charge would make more sense to me if they also upheld the law with the full-grown man who Blake and many witnesses reported assaulted him. But that's the way things happened, and Blake's final court date was set for October 24th, 2011, a date Blake likely didn't even live to see. After Blake was assaulted, Melissa told me that she was harassed and stalked by the stepfather and others. She says things got so bad, they packed up in the middle of the night and moved. Not only was he violent towards him, but our whole entire family had been stalked. Um, we moved in the middle of the night to a, a different county, um, and it didn't take long for the stalking to start again. And this was, you know, um, killing our animals shining, you know, big police lights on the back of our house at two or three in the morning. Just a lot, a lot of things going on since Blake was attacked. I asked Melissa if she reported these incidents to the police. She told me she hadn't, in large part because she just didn't trust the police anymore. I did not. And in some ways I regret that. Um, but through everything that I went through and Blake went through, um, which involved a detective um, with the whole incident, uh, I honestly didn't know who I could trust. And at that point, um, I didn't feel like I could, I could trust any police officer. Now, this might sound a little jarring to some of you. But honestly, I can completely understand where Melissa is coming from. A few years ago, I'm pretty sure my home was broken into at least once, if not multiple times. I did not call the Phoenix Police Department because I didn't trust them. In my experience, there's something in your brain that kind of gets shattered when you hear the police lie or just be less than outstanding citizens. This image of all officers being the safe haven or an example of upstanding behavior is pretty much ruined because you realize they really can be just as terrible as any other person on this planet. I'm not condoning not reporting crimes to the police. I wish I had reported those incidents now. 
but at the time, I was more afraid of the police than I was of a potential criminal coming into my home. It might sound a little crazy, but that's what trauma will do to you. Also, while we're on the subject, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that January is National Stalking Awareness Month. Stalking is a very serious and scary crime. I'm not going to give you a lecture here, but I want to encourage all of you to believe the victims of stalking when they come forward, and to take those claims seriously, whether it was reported to the police or not. Now, let's fast forward a bit to October 15, 2011, the night of Blake's homecoming dance. By this time, Blake began dating a girl named Ryan. It appears that they were quite smitten with each other, and her parents, Shannon and Matt, seemed to like Blake a lot. That day, Melissa takes Blake to Cole's, where he spends a lot of time trying to pick out a tie to match Ryan's dress. They send a lot of pictures back and forth, and he finally finds the perfect tie. After this, Melissa drives Blake to Ryan's parents' house, where they go take pictures. From here, Ryan's mom takes them to a sushi restaurant so they can have dinner. They finish a little early before the dance really started, so they go back to Ryan's house and start watching a movie before it's finally time for the big dance. During the dance, Blake sends Melissa a video of him and Ryan dancing and tells her that it was the best day of his life. After the dance is over, Ryan's mom picks them up and takes them back to her house where they finish the movie they started earlier. After the movie is over, Blake is supposed to go back home, but he calls Melissa and asks if he could go stay the night at his friend Austin's house. Melissa is nervous. Blake hasn't slept over at anyone's house since he was assaulted, but she agrees under the condition that they cannot leave Austin's house for any reason. Blake agrees and tells his mom, I love you and I'll see you tomorrow. From here, Ryan's mom drives him to Austin's house. It seems like Blake and Austin just kind of hang out for a while, but at some point, they do sneak out of the house and walk to a nearby convenience store in hopes of buying some cigarettes. Luckily, the store is closed, so they can't even try to buy them underage, and they just walk back to Austin's house. Now, Melissa told me that one of the big mysteries in her son's case is that there was a possible second friend at Austin's home that night with him and Blake. She told me that Austin's mother told her about this second boy at the home. They believe his name is Tavis, like Travis without the R. But she says she can't find any official information about this kid anywhere. Austin's mom told me that the kid's name was Travis. But it turns out, later on, I found out his name was Tavis. Now, I don't know this kid's last name, um... But I really would like to know if anyone knows who this person is um, and can confirm, you know, that he actually was there that night because the police don't mention it. You know, even though it was mentioned in the very beginning to me between Austin Harmon's mother and I, it's never been included in anything else. And I really don't understand why. Either way, around 2 a.m., Blake tells Austin he's going to go sneak into Ryan's house to go see her. Austin says, okay, lends him a hoodie and gives him a house key so he can get back in later, and Austin falls asleep. Ryan confirms that around 2 a.m., she got a text from Blake saying he was coming over. Now, it's about three miles between Austin's home and Ryan's home. At approximately 4.30 a.m., Ryan gets another text confirming that Blake is still on his way. 
Blake sneaks into Ryan's window, and not too long after, he gets caught by her grandmother. Ryan would later laugh about this incident in an interview, saying that Blake's first instinct was to try to hide under the covers on her bed, which obviously just didn't work. While Ryan's grandmother is going to get Ryan's mother, Shannon, Ryan tells him he needs to leave. They kiss, say goodbye, and Blake sneaks back out through the window. Now, at this time, Blake did have a cell phone. This was a very new cell phone, only about two weeks old, and it couldn't make calls. It could only text. But while Blake is walking back to Austin's house, he is basically texting Ryan and her mother excessively to apologize for breaking the rules. He also mentions things such as he is cold, he's near a bridge, and that he was being, quote, pulled over by police, despite being on foot. Now, this could just be a slip on wording, or we could be missing something here. But in these texts, Blake says an officer does stop him, checks his ID, and gives him a lecture about curfew before sending him on his way. However, the police have no record of this incident. At 5.20 a.m., Blake texts Ryan about how cold it was outside. This is the last known text message sent from Blake's phone. There would be some interesting sightings of Blake after this, though. A clerk at a nearby gas station says he saw Blake at 7.30 a.m. when he asked when the store opened. The store didn't open until 8, so Blake left. The clerk was unsure of what direction he was headed. Witnesses at a QT gas station placed Blake there around 9.30 a.m. However, the police have never been able to verify these sightings. Now, that morning after Blake leaves, Shannon woke up her husband Matt to tell him about Blake sneaking into the house. According to her, he just kind of rolled over, said something like, damn teenagers almost laughing, and went back to sleep. Later that morning, Matt went to go set up some items for a hunt he was going on later, while Shannon and Ryan went out to look for Blake around 9.30 a.m. When Matt is finished around 11 a.m., he joins his family in searching for Blake. It's worth noting that Blake and Ryan did have plans to hang out at 11 a.m. that he obviously missed. Now, also around 11 a.m., Austin calls Melissa to tell her that Blake went to Ryan's house but never came back. Just before noon, Melissa reports Blake missing to the Noonan police. Extensive searches were conducted to find Blake, but they weren't able to find anything. Not a single clue as to where Blake might have gone. Some have theorized that Blake simply ran away to avoid his upcoming court date for the custodial interference charge. But that day came and went, and his charges were ultimately dropped without Blake resurfacing. Melissa told me that she spent much of the first few weeks just sitting, waiting by her home phone for Blake to call. That call would never come. But five weeks after Blake goes missing, Melissa receives a call from someone. Someone she thinks may have been involved in Blake's disappearance. But I did receive a phone call, um, and I answered, and, um... I could hear a TV playing in the background very, on very low, but no one would say anything. Uh, and it sounded like with the sound of the echo, um, it just sounded like somebody had been standing like in the kitchen or maybe in adjoining between two adjoining rooms, just listening um, and, and never would say anything. And, uh, I just, 
I just kept saying Blake, Blake, you know, um, until I just, I just couldn't handle it anymore. I, I ended up disconnecting the line. Ultimately, Melissa isn't able to figure out who made the phone call. But just a few weeks later, she gets another call. The one she's been dreading since October 16th. Blake's body has been found. On Monday, December 19th, about two months after Blake was reported missing, the Noonan police receive a report of a body floating in a creek. He was found only in his undershirt and underwear. His ID, clothing, cell phone, and all other possessions were missing, and they have never been recovered. The autopsy report confirmed that the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head, and the manner of death was homicide. The date and time of death is listed as unknown on his death certificate. However, police told the media that they believe his body was in the creek for about a week. That leaves us with basically two months that are unaccounted for. We don't know if Blake was killed on October 16th, kept somewhere and later disposed of in this creek, or if he was taken, kept alive, and later killed. According to Melissa, she has no idea. We do know that this creek is on the route Blake most likely would have taken to get from Ryan's house back to Austin's house. Now, let's be honest, this doesn't look good for Ryan's parents. They caught Blake in their teenage daughter's room when he wasn't supposed to be there, and they were the last people the police believe saw Blake alive. But Melissa told me she doesn't believe Ryan's parents were involved at all in her son's murder. And as far as I could find, they seem to have been extremely cooperative in the investigation, as was Ryan. The Camerons went through pure hell. Um, the Noonan police tore their house apart looking for evidence. They were given lie detector tests more than once. Um, they were questioned numerous times. I asked Melissa why she thought there was a larger focus on Ryan's parents and not the man who recently assaulted her son. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, it, it com really comes down to the police believing, you know, I guess the percentage of people that go missing, it has something to do usually with the last people that's, that saw them alive. And they believe that the Camerons were the last ones to see Blake alive. Um, I just don't believe, I, I, I think that they had tunnel vision and um, just didn't want to believe that the backstory played a bigger part than what they were actually seeing. The police state that the stepfather has been cleared and is not a suspect in Blake's murder. No suspects have been named in Blake's case. This is another one of those cases where we are left with a lot of questions and a lot of possibilities. The police haven't released a lot of information about Blake's death. In fact, we know almost nothing. I requested Blake's records from the Noonan police and only got a few pages summarizing the case. There was no autopsy report and nothing about the state his body was found in. I and Melissa have no idea whether there were injuries to Blake's body. We don't know if he was strangled, if he'd been restrained, beaten, nothing. We basically just know the cause and manner of death. Gunshot wound to the head. Homicide. Melissa has stated in one interview that she was told Blake's body was beginning to turn black in the creek. 
but that's about all we know. Now, according to Dr. Stephanie Dillon, the director of freshman chemistry laboratories at Florida State University, typically a body will begin turning black 10 to 20 days after death, which still leaves us with some unaccounted for time. But like I've said time and time again, I am not an expert, you guys. And who knows how being in a cold river in the winter could have affected Blake's body. Another large concern Melissa has with the investigation is that they've never been able to find or even ping Blake's phone. So we really have to take everyone at their word. Now, I have to assume with how hard they looked into Ryan's family that they took her phone to confirm these messages. But I can't tell you that for sure. The last time Melissa spoke with her son, he was at Ryan's house, begging her to let him stay at Austin's house for the night. It is believed that Blake made it to Austin's house. But what about the second mystery kid who was there? Also, it appears that the backpack Blake left at Austin's house has never been recovered. In one interview, Austin states that he did have Blake's backpack, but it got misplaced in a move. And what about all these sightings of Blake that the police say they can't confirm? The police say that Blake's phone went quiet right around 5.30 a.m., but maybe it died after he was literally out all night. I also have to wonder what happened with that officer. Now, I do understand if maybe this incident was just so small that the cop didn't want to write up a report about stopping and lecturing a kid about being out past curfew. But why didn't this officer come forward afterwards to help solidify this timeline? We don't know. We could theorize all day. It feels like there are a lot of possibilities here. But I asked Melissa what she thinks happened to Blake. I have a couple of different theories. Um, I definitely believe that he was taken. Um, I don't know if he went willingly at first and then realized that he had gotten himself into a, a, a bad situation or if he was immediately taking against his will, taken against his will. Um, because we all know that he was not murdered in the, at the location that he was found. They never did find the murder scene. Um, they've never recovered any of his personal items. Um, but I believe that whatever did take place, Blake felt he was doing it for a purpose. Um, one of my theories is he was, he was lured out, um, by the, by the, uh, ex-girlfriend's stepfather or, uh, Blake did have some friends that were also related to the ex-girlfriend's stepfather who could have very well, you know, texted him and lured him out or he was being followed, um, either tracked or actually followed. I truly believe in my heart that stepfather had something to do with it. If he didn't do it himself, he had someone do it. While I don't want to discount Melissa's belief about what happened to her son, the police say that they've cleared the stepfather and it seems like they're not looking at that possibility at all. I'm just stating the facts here. Melissa clearly believes he was involved, and the police don't. 
but true crime is a weird and scary place. It's not unheard of for someone to be cleared by police to later be arrested for the crime. Again, just speaking more facts. The stepfather is innocent until proven guilty, like every other person I speak about on this show. Melissa told me that although she doesn't speak with the police often about Blake's case anymore, the relationship has improved. Sergeant Blakenship, the investigator who was first assigned to Blake's case in 2011, is now the chief of the Noonan Police Department. Last year, last month, marked 10 years since Blake's body was found. The Noonan Police launched a webpage to feature Blake's case as well as other unsolved homicides in the area. The city of Noonan is also offering a $20,000 reward in Blake's case. This reward was the largest in the city's history when it was first offered. Now, Melissa is just doing the best she can to get the word out there about Blake's case, while also trying to remember his life more than his death. Blake's case was recently featured on Friend to the Show, John Lorden's YouTube channel. Because John is truly an amazing human being, he's offered his and his team services to help Melissa. Well, um, John Lorden has also um, sent me two wonderful ladies to work with who have been working on Blake's and my behalf at least for the last three or four months. Um, they've been doing all sorts of things. They've, they've contacted different States. Um, they're working on, um, getting a billboard in place, um, for Blake. Um, and they're also, um, writers, for one of uh, John's other uh, podcasts, programs. Um, they've helped me immensely, like I said, emotionally, mentally, um, physically, just, you know, kind of keep it together and give some sense of order to what needs to be done and what steps to take. Um, we're we're looking into, you know, PIs. Um, we're looking into some, some FOIA requests. Um, and they've actually filed a couple of those on, on my behalf, Blake's behalf. So, um, you know, going forward, I'm really excited, um, and truly believe that we're going to make some progress. Of course, I asked Melissa what her call to action is for Blake's case. Any attention that we could bring to Blake's case and and not only his death, but his, his life as well, um, would be a blessing. And I know that he's working right along with us and um, he wants to see some healing, not only for his family, but for the community that was impacted by his death. It's that simple. Melissa is just looking for people to care about and share Blake's case. So please take a moment to do that. As a reminder, 17-year-old Blake Chappelle went missing from Noonan, Georgia on October 16, 2011. Blake was a white male, 
5 foot 9, 125 pounds, with reddish curly hair, two bottom lip piercings, and he had a Playboy tattoo on the left side of his chest. There is debate about the clothing he was wearing that night, but it was likely a hoodie, pants, and shoes. If you have any information about the disappearance or death of Blake Chappelle, please contact the Noonan Police Department at 770-254-2355 or contact Crime Stoppers. Tips can be submitted anonymously. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice.